From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Poet Susie Q. Smith watches as longtime Denverites like herself are squeezed out of the city. I don't think that everyone comes in like Columbus. I don't enjoy the ones who do, right? The ones who come and pretend that there was nothing here and now we can just make it be whatever. So for the people that come to conquer Denver, to come to reimagine Denver in some entirely new way um, and make it unaffordable for the people who have been living there already, I don't enjoy them very much. That's not everyone that comes to Denver. Today, Smith shares poems that are truly for the birds. How else do you know where you are if not for the birds singing you the chorus of a place, showing you its colors, saying, yes, we see you, you are here, and I am here, I am, I am. A poet's perspective as Denver elects a new mayor. Every day, there are complex issues to decipher, from our changing climate to education to water rights and the economy. You want to understand the impacts and hear directly from decision makers and the people affected by those decisions. Because of CPR's and NPR's careful and thorough reporting, you know more about your community, state, nation, and world. And your financial support helps make it all possible. It's easy to give at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Take two in the Denver mayor's race is tomorrow. The runoff election pits former state senator and educator Mike Johnston against Kelly Bruff, former chamber leader and one-time head of HR for the city. Today, it's not so much a political perspective we get as a poetic one. Few have thought as deeply about Denver as our guest, Susie Q. Smith, poet, musician, activist, and educator. We caught up a ways from Denver at the Mountain Words Festival in Crested Butte. Susie, I'm so glad to meet you. So nice to meet you, Ryan. Denver is about to elect a new mayor. Indeed. Do you feel the weight of that as you think and write about the city these days? I feel the weight of it, the possibility, the terror of it. It's so hard to know. And I'm not really sure how much it really changes anything. I think we're going to see. I'm I'm excited, concerned, equally. And um, I think it's time. And I'm not sure yet um, how I feel about it. I think that I'm I'm a little divested. Mm. I vote very actively. But emotionally, I have decided to divest. Yeah, that was my next question, is whether you were a regular voter. And it's an interesting thing to have the tension of voting and being active and also somewhat, as you say, divested. Talk about that tension for me. So I love voting. I'm a very opinionated person. So if you send me a survey, I'm filling it out. So I love voting. I also think about voting as something that my grandmother participated in. And I remember waiting in line with her and how how sacred that tradition was and going to the Denver Museum of Nature and Science and standing in this long line with her after she'd worked all day while she voted. And so for me, there's this and also like my grandmother is a black woman born in 1930. Right. So going to vote with her is still like it's so sacred to me. And I have that memory. I also think that it is one of the smallest acts of our civic duty. right? And so I think that I still have a lot of relationship to voting, but it's probably the smallest thing I do when it comes to really changing things or creating the world that I want to live in. Yeah, the picture you paint is before mail-in voting. Yes. Yeah, lines out of the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. What is the biggest thing you do if voting is de minimis? 
I think that all of the things, so I generally identify as an artist, activist, educator, organizer, community builder, all of those things. And I think that I'm kind of doing all of those things all of the time. And so I think part of it is really engaging people's hearts. Poetry and art and music have this power to disrupt apathy. And I think that's one of the things, right? And really engaging imagination and considering possibility, shifting conversation and culture. And then we move, right? Based on where our hearts are. And so I think about Sonia Sanchez said that, you know, any movement for it to be sustainable, it's got to be rooted in the heart. And I think that that's what art helps us to do. It's this invitation to open the heart in a society that doesn't necessarily encourage that. Is there a piece of art that did that for you? So much. I grew up with hip hop. I grew up with punk rock. <laughs> I grew up with very politically engaging work um, and what hip hop was in the 1980s and the 1990s and thinking about some of the ways that it engaged and also punk rock and thinking about a lot of artists and musicians that that made things that were deeply compelling. Also, a lot of the work that I saw wasn't necessarily reflective of the things that I needed to hear and I wasn't necessarily represented in all the ways that I wanted to be, which is probably part of what led me to become an artist. Mm. Um, what think, part of yourself was not reflected, do you think? I think so much all of the intersections that I live in, right? Nowhere in the world of music, nowhere in the world of literature did I see Denver represented. Right? <laughs> 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 you know, being this biracial black girl growing up in Denver, Colorado, I didn't see a lot of me anywhere. And so uh, I think that's part of it. Dynasty didn't do it for not you. Not at all. <laughs> it's not present. And so I think part of that is just going like, huh. My creative process is either like from the excess or from the void, right? And so it's either like this abundance of feelings that I can't contain and I have to put them somewhere so I don't explode. But there's also that void of like kind of looking around like, is someone going to say this thing? Is no one's going to say this? No one's going to, we're not talking about, oh, it's me. It has to be me. I have to be the person to say this mm. thing. If I want to put this in the air, if I want this thought to exist outside of myself, I have to make sure that I communicate it. I love it that you said it. I have to put this in the air because in April, you released three poems that all feature birds, <laughs> pigeons, bald eagles, and ravens. True. What can we learn about Denver from birds? Uh, they are part of Denver's ecosystem or were. I think that a lot of us during the pandemic uh, started paying attention to the very small nature around our homes, especially in the city. I think, you know, you start to get to know the squirrels that yeah. live in your trees and yeah. you notice the little robins and you notice which birds you see and which birds you don't. And you fall in love with the little bird sounds. And I think being at home for a long period of time, we all sort of got more aware of the ecosystems around us, hmm. even in the city. You get to know your raccoons, right? <laughs> and it's not just visual, right? With birds, of course, it's sound. Right. I mean, sometimes they would keep me up. When I wanted to be sleeping in. Very much. Yeah. Very much. And so that's how the Raven poem happened, actually. So during the pandemic, uh, with my dear friend Vogue Robinson, who lives in Las Vegas, she and I co-hosted every Sunday morning for a year writing sessions for people just to come and be in community and sit together and write on Zoom. And there was one Sunday morning during one of those writing sessions, there was a very loud raven aggressively yelling outside of my window. And I was trying to focus and I thought that I knew what I was going to write about that morning. And the raven just kept yelling and it was right outside the window. And so I had to become aware of it. And that's how the raven poem ended up being written because it had to be. Um, I think with the pigeons, similarly, I wasn't going downtown as much during the at home times. And mm -hmm. so then when I did, I noticed I wasn't seeing pigeons and that's something that I look for. Someone, you know, I've traveled all over the country and from one city to the next, I kind of feel at home when I look at pigeons because everywhere has pigeons. And I've noticed they were missing. And I thought that was very odd. 
And at first, I just thought it was like strange coincidence. It's like, huh, no pigeons today. No pigeons. No pigeons. And then I finally started looking it up, and I realized that the lack of pigeons was very intentional. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Like Denver decided to get rid of them? In fact, yes. What, what's the story? Uh, so there's, yeah, I found a little article. <laughs> and so uh, Denver poisoned the pigeons. Yeah, they, find, they, they tried a few different things. And it almost reads like um, some of it's almost comical. Like the way the U.S. tried to get rid of Fidel Castro, like all of these, like oh yeah, really, like, trying to make his beard fall out, like all of these outrageous things, right? That yeah, they did, poison and pens. Then, you know, they built these like these spiky things across like a lot of the different, like the higher roofs, rooftops in downtown. Oh yes, I've seen this. And that they, kind of hostile architecture. Yeah. It, yes, but the pigeons like figured all those things out, and they were like, oh, we're just going to nest in this. This is great. Thanks, Denver. You know? And so they found all of these ways. And it, the primary motivation was that the city was spending so much money on abatement of their waste, right? There were so many pigeons and they were trying to figure out how to get rid of them. And so they finally found that there was a hallucinogenic that worked um, that either caused them to get very confused and and no longer return home or or die. So that is why Denver no longer really has pigeons in, in downtown. We still have pigeons as a city, but mm-hmm. downtown, not so much. Is there a symbol or metaphor in that for you? Absolutely. I feel like... It's almost a test of who's who's valuable, right? People generally don't love pigeons. I think that, and and the fact that when I talk about it, no one else has noticed that they're gone mm. is the most alarming bit. And so it feels like, you know, when we talk about canaries in the coal mine, right? I feel called out, Susie. <laughs> There's, it's really true. No one has noticed that they're gone. No one loves them. And so when they're missing, everyone's fine, right? And when we consider the hostile architecture, of course, in downtown Denver to remove people who are without ho- housing, and so uh, we used to have benches and places for people to sit. When you think about the coffee shops downtown, most of them don't have indoor seating anymore. Most of them have, you know, signs that are very clear, like, take your things and get on out. Move on, right? move on. Like just, and also now, like, grass is replaced with huge boulders, so people can't set up tents. Like, there are a lot of different things that are quite hostile to anyone sitting still and getting comfortable for any length of time. I hear you saying this is like avian gentrification, Indeed, in deciding which species are valuable and who we would like to attract and who we would not. And I think that, you know, it's one of the fastest growing cities in the country. We're the second most rapidly gentrified city in the country in the last 10 years, just right behind San Francisco. So that's huge considering the amount of change, right? And also, having lived in Denver for my entire life, the erasure is is really astounding. So I'm not really opposed to growth. I've been primarily, I think, curious about it. And as Denver continues to reinvent itself and reinvent itself, I have so many questions about who Denver is for. And as it continues to change, I'm still not sure what the answer is, right? And I think it's certainly not for pigeons, and it has decided that. So, I think we got to do the pigeon poem. Yeah, me too. Sure. Um, Downtown is dead. Even the pigeons don't go down there anymore. My reflection in the buildings looks like a ghost. The city killed the pigeons off, put up spikes they just built nests in, put up poison, sent them flying in circles till they got lost or dropped dead. The city was tired of their crap, cleaning it over and over. The city hates its poor, and everyone knows pigeons are poor man's doves. The city does not have doves. The city announced last year it was time to start killing the geese. They were becoming a nuisance, so common, so everywhere. The city would rather have 
an ostrich or an emu, a roadrunner, but only if it owns a home. I keep looking for the pigeons, the lavender gray fringes, the smoky white tufts, the free-range yolky eyes watching back while they peck and gather and peck and gather. No one else even notices they're gone, which, of course, feels like a test. Who else am I supposed to share these sideways glances with? How else do you keep time? How else do you know where you are if not for the birds singing you the chorus of a place, showing you its colors, saying, yes, we see you, you are here, and I am here, I am, I am, I am, I am, I am. The description of bird eyes as yolky is brilliant. Did you, you were going for an egg theme? Indeed. Yeah, indeed. that's just brilliant. And then also, in the beginning, as you talk about the ghost of seeing yourself, mm-hmm. I think reflected maybe in a high rise? Very much. Yeah, I've had that experience. And it it feels as empty now, an experience in downtown Denver, as it has ever. Yes. It's a very, it's a jarring sort of place to be sometimes. Right? It's almost a ghost town in certain times when you go. Yes. And so seeing like these sort of wavy apparitions <laughs> that might be a reflection of you or maybe not, uh, and it's not quite the same bustling cityscape, uh, except for sometimes, right, in mm-hmm. different parts of it. And so it's it's odd to see. Yeah, the pockets you know. of it is so strange. Yeah. But you know, my profound sense, e- even in the Denver post-pandemic, is how much I love it. Yes. Do you feel that, 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 I don't want to be a fair-weather friend to Denver. Does that make sense? I think Denver is home. It's been the only home I've ever known. It is the place that has made me. There are so many things I love about Denver, and particularly its people. So many people I love in Denver. There's a reason I've stayed in Denver mm-hmm. for my entire life. Largely, most of my family isn't there now, right? And so... That's really unusual, right? In fact, my mother was just saying to me the other day, like, of all of us, I'm surprised you're the one still there. (laughs) Mm, (laughs) That surprises her. It does, very much. And so, obviously, there's a lot that I love about Denver, and I have a lot of deep relationships there, and have done my work and lived my life there. And so, I have a lot of investment in Denver, and I still believe in its possibility and the best of it. And I think that's gorgeous. And I think I love that you mentioned pockets, right? Because I think that Denver's always lived in these pockets. Mm-hmm. And there's all these little beautiful pieces of, I think, you know, I often think about like the United States, we talk about it as being the melting pot. And I always describe it as a mosaic, right? Where you have these very, very distinct pockets of things coming together. And I think at its best, right, you have the most beautiful little emergences of of communities and different people and cultures coming together in an intentional way that creates a larger picture where no one has to be watered down or dismissed, right? Everyone gets to show up as their most rich colors, their most vibrant selves, right? And I think Denver's that way too, right? Denver used to have more diversity than it does now, and that is alarming to me. And I think as we're seeing it become more and more homogenized, that's the part that is is concerning to me and makes it feel a little less like home than it used to. Mm. And I think that when I talk with other people who have lived in Denver a long time, there's this sense that we're being gaslit, right? Like it's almost like not only do we not recognize the place we are, but there's this mythology now that that it never existed, right? And there's this, we are now the strangers and this like, you know, that was never... That was never even a thing. And it's not uncommon to drive down a Denver block and see the entire block has shifted in the space of a year. 
And so trying to figure out where you are, what's happening, and, and try to find a place that remembers you, it's almost as if you've invented an entire life that doesn't exist. The cultural erasure is so aggressive because it's so rapid. And of course, so many people are displaced from it. The people that remember those things with you are fewer and fewer mm. all the time. The brain trust has been lost. Yes. I'm going back to the pigeons in my mind because as you wrote about them in that poem, they were something of an anchor for you, a yes. reminder, a compass. Yes. Bald eagles. Yes. Kind of, it's kind of the opposite of a pigeon. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> and in so many ways, right? The relationship that they've had. I think, you know, again, growing up, as a kid, bald eagles were almost extinct, right? They were DDT. talked about as like deeply, deeply precious, right? Yes. And then they were intentionally brought back, right? And so they represent now for me this hope and this possibility of like re-indigenizing. So we can learn from the behaviors and we can actually restore the population. And so, uh, in fact, I was at City Park a few weeks ago and just saw this bald eagle hanging out on this block of ice just chilling. We're all standing around looking at it, talking about it, taking pictures. It didn't move. It didn't notice us. It was just living its bald eagle life. Like, yeah, yeah I live here. What? Yeah, I wonder if bald <laughs> eagles are aware that they're the national symbol. Right. You know, if they have ego about it. Right. And how precious they were and how, how much more populated they are right now. Now they're no longer even endangered, I think. So now it feels very hopeful when I think about the bald eagle and it was at the brink. And then we went, oh, no. And we brought it back. Well, I think we have to hear the bald eagle poem. So this is in the voice of a bald eagle. <laughs> so, um, and I think she has a sense of humor. In this, I, I think I hear her as a she. LOL, I was almost extinct out here. Then they want to put me on their money, on their flag, on their official seal like I represent their freedom. Like they ain't tried to shoot me out the sky just to prove they can. Want to tuck my stolen feathers in their cap like they giving God the bird. I am the bird. I am God's bird. That's why they hate me so. Smell the free air against my skin. Make them not nets jealous of my soaring. Make them sling rocks because everybody want to act like they're David before he was king. But don't nobody want to talk about the blood on his hands except his own God who said his hands were too soiled to build his temple, which is probably a story about the insatiability of violence and how quick it gets out of hand. Oh, America, you nearly killed me to make me yours. If you could have made me the ghost in your mouth, would your breath have smelled like sulfur? Did you think my feathers would make you fly? Look, I'm an old bird, bald-headed and everything. I remember the old stories and a life before you. Most of all, I know how temporary and forever we are. Don't come looking uninvited in my nest for answers and expect to leave your eyes intact. I think the the eagle is pissed. Yes. Like a little pissed. Yes. But also sort of laughing at them. Like, okay. Because also, like, ultimately, she's winning. <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? And she right. knows it. She's just like, okay, you almost killed me. And now, like, I'm your symbol. Whatever. Like, do you? I'm going to continue. And still, I'm thinking about this eagle being perched on the ice, just living its eagle life. Like, you... I'm fine. You can't even touch me. Yeah. yeah. But also the notion of don't intrude on my nest yes. makes me think a lot about your earlier comments about Denver right now, displacement, Yes. who Denver is for, whose nest Denver is now. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't have the, I don't have a sense of ownership of Denver. Um, you know, 
My father's people came from Kansas City. My mother's people came from San Luis Valley. And they came from Africa and Europe before that, right? So <laughs> it doesn't belong to me. I don't have any territorial relationship to it. Um, I'm not a person that has a native bumper sticker. Um, <laughs> I do laugh at those often. Right? <laughs> so I don't feel like I own it or like no one else. I think that migration is natural. I think people are migratory. I think that is very normal and natural. So that's not really my concern at all. I also... I enjoy many of the people who live in Denver now who didn't used to, right? So, <laughs> well, now that's that may separate you from other longtime Denverites because I I do think that there is an understandable frustration, maybe at the extreme end, hostility, an otherizing of those who you know came in after you. In fact, why don't you have that? I don't think that everyone comes in like Columbus. I don't enjoy the ones who do, right? The ones who come and pretend that there was nothing here and now we can just make it be whatever. Uh, so for the people that come to conquer Denver, to come to reimagine Denver in some entirely new way um, and make it unaffordable for the people who have been living there already, I don't enjoy them very much. That's not everyone that comes to Denver. I think about, um, like, architecture is a great example. So mm. my dear friend Bobby Lefebvre, he's Colorado State Poet Laureate, yes. he and I were having a conversation about the North Side specifically, right? He writes a lot about the North Side, right? So I'm from Park Hill. He's from the North Side. And we've watched this together um, as it's been happening. A lot of the new places in the North Side, but I think the houses in Park Hill and the North Side were traditionally pretty similar, right? Very front porch communities. And now a lot of the houses in the North Side have the rooftop patios, right? So they've scraped the, the houses that were there before and they now have these rooftop patios. Yes, which so, are fundamentally not connecting or weaving. Exactly. It's, it's disrupting the way that a neighborhood operates, right? So Bobby and I both grew up in a Denver where you know your neighbors. You borrow a cup of sugar, right? These are things you, you talk to your neighbors. You know who they are. They know who you are. You know which houses you can go to, which ones you cannot, like, et cetera. And people communicate with each other. And that's part of how we thrive and how we survive as a community. And so now having these new homes... The new home isn't necessarily the issue, right? Having the rooftop patio where you no longer interact, where you literally disrupt the way a place functions by looking down on it, that's the kind of new Denver I don't enjoy. The perspicacious poetry of Susie Q. Smith on today's show. Coming up, her prose. She's working on a memoir about her formative years in Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. They're back. Miller moths are on the move in Colorado. They can be pretty cool animals and really neat if you look at them up close or take a step back and look at their very interesting life cycle. Why they're here, where their name comes from, and a few other moth-related questions from listeners, read the story at CPR.org. The final part of my conversation now with Denver poet Susie Q. Smith, whose collections include A Gospel of Bones and Poems for the End of the World. You're working on a memoir. I am. How did you know it was time to pursue that? Oh, I think I couldn't not anymore. That's part of creating from the excess and the void. Then the, the need to create it became so excessive that I had to start writing it. This is a second reference you've made to the notion of feeling like you might burst if you don't get it out. Yes. And I think that's very, it's, it's urgent. You know, it's when something I, I say will, will come knocking on my teeth. And <laughs> it sounds painful. <laughs> so you have to say it. You've got to let it go. <laughs> you know, that's part of it. So it's, uh, it's very different writing prose. 
I've spent my life in poetry for the most part. And so now working in prose, is it's a very, very different model. Has it been cathartic to go through old memories? Mm, I think I do that with my poetry already. Okay. So, I mean, I think most of my work is pretty autobiographical. So it's not, that part is not new. What's a narrative that you revisited as part of writing this memoir? Oh, so many. Primarily, this is focused on childhood. So initially, I thought when I set out to write this memoir, I was writing my first 13-ish years. And then it's now in conversation with itself in many timelines. So there are so many different pieces as you start writing and remembering more and remembering more. It's sort of like writing dreams. If you've ever journaled your dreams, it's hard to remember dreams initially. And then the more you get into the practice of remembering them and recalling them by writing them down, the easier it gets to remember more and more and more. And before you know it, you have like full pages of journaling your dreams once you get into that practice. And it's the same thing, I think, with writing memory. Do you ever worry that the memories are invented? No. No. Okay. No. Sometimes I don't trust my memory, Susie. Yeah. I do have conversations with... I. One of my older sisters helps me to place timelines. Aha. Uh-huh. Oh, yes. You have witnesses. I do. I'm the youngest in my family. So I think sometimes I have to go like, okay, this was 1980 what? Tell me because what I remember is this. And so we can piece it together. And she says, actually, it was, it was this. She has a little, a little bit more time and a different viewpoint. I think ultimately with memoir, like, is any of it ever exact, right? Mm. There are pieces of it. I've had a few friends read it that were in, in, that are in the book, right? You know, and they're like, and they remember things slightly differently. They were like, well, I was there when this thing happened. And I'm like, well, you didn't contribute to the scene, love. So you're not in it. No. <laughs> 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 there, are, there are like little minute details that, that don't necessarily matter. I think that what I'm sharing is overall, it is an absolutely true representation of my memory, certainly. Will it be populated by places that no longer exist? Definitely. How can I write a story that took place in Denver in the 1980s and 90s without including places that no longer exist? To that end, before we go, is Denver for artists today? I hope so. I don't think it would be possible for me to be the artist that I am growing up in today's Denver. Mm. Largely because many of the spaces and communities I was allowed to create in no longer exist. I think about the ways that we created open mics and we created concerts and shows and turned things into venues because we went to local coffee shops and said, hey, can me and my friends do this thing? And they were like, yeah, that's fine. (laughs) Me and my friends did the thing. Hmm. There was a community sense in that way that a lot of those places just don't exist anymore. Yeah, it feels so corporatized now, doesn't it? Right. I mean, we still have the Mercury Cafe. We still have Whittier Cafe. We still have a few spaces that will lend themselves to the arts. And we do have SCFD. We do have arts and venues. Like there are organizations that definitely support the arts. And SCFD I think that, is the Scientific and Cultural Facilities District, a taxing district to support the arts. Yes. And so, but they they, tax, they fund specifically arts organizations, right? So not directly artists. And so I think about how you become and see yourself in a space and really just when you're trying things out, when you're not, I think when you're, a, if you're a fully fledged living your life as an artist professionally, Denver's a place you can live. Mm-hmm. You have to be an institution. Yes, but <laughs> but to become an artist in Denver, I think I I don't know what I would do now without you know we we no longer have a Paris on the Platte or a Muddy's or even a Perkins Denny's Village in White Spot right all of these places where I sat down and, and with my little one dollar to buy a pot of coffee for hours so I could sit quietly in a corner and write my poems uh, or so I could just you know gather with my friends for a long time and think about things and vision what was possible. And I think for young people, there are very few places like that that are safe for them to gather. 
and and be themselves and express. And so I think that is we do have, of course, some organizations, right? We have some we have youth on record. We have art from ashes. We have some really important organizations that definitely foster youth voice. Right. But there's not nearly enough of it. And we need we need more places for the youth to develop their voice. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Denver poet Susie Q. Smith. Later this year, she'll take part in a residency in France to hone her latest work. Special thanks to KBUT in Crested Butte for hosting us during the Mountain Words Literary Festival. Thanks as well to Western Slope producer Tom Hess. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from listener-supported CPR News and KRCC.